Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is a special episode of Ed Infinitum entitled, We're All Homeschoolers Now. Homeschooling has long been seen as a fringe movement, a practice for the ultra-religious or otherwise socially nonconforming. But now the widespread school closures in the wake of COVID-19 have forced many, if not most, families across America to take up this practice. In this episode, we're going to look at the history of homeschooling in the United States, and afterwards, have an interview with one particular homeschooling family. So it's kind of hard to pick a starting point when talking about the history of homeschooling, as to some extent it's always gone on. Wealthy families in Europe and the United States routinely employed live-in tutors for their children for as long as we've had records. And parents of farming families or small businesses would routinely tutor their children in their trade. To some extent, before the advent of compulsory free public education, pretty much any education that children whose families couldn't afford a formal schooling received was homeschooling. By those kinds of definitions, Ben Franklin, John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Frank Lloyd Wright, and Ansel Adams were all homeschooled. But I think when we refer to homeschooling in the contemporary context, we're talking about families attempting to replicate at least some of the structures or trappings of formal schooling, but transplanted into the context of the home, where parents can pick and choose elements they want to keep, expand, or discard as per their own values and priorities, essentially becoming the arbiters of what is learned and how it's learned. The formal articulation of this as a philosophy, or some would say a movement, really has its roots in America in two individuals, John Holt and Raymond Moore, who in some ways stand for the progressive leftist and religious rightist traditions of homeschooling, respectively. In terms of religious homeschooling, I'll also give honorable mention to a man named Rusus John Rushduni, who in the 1960s became sort of the vanguard of various Christian homeschooling movements. Rushduni attacked traditional education on the grounds of its incompatibility with what he defined as religious values. The contemporary organization known as the Homeschooling Legal Defense Association, or HSLDA, is heavily influenced by Rushduni's work. But John Holt and Raymond Moore really are the fathers of the major modern threads of homeschooling. Holt and Moore were both veterans of the Pacific War. Holt served on a submarine while Moore was on MacArthur's general staff. And after the war, both found their way to become educators. Holt took a somewhat rambling path. His experience in the war led him to become something of a wandering peace activist and so-called political troubadour, then did the obligatory Jack Kerouac-style bike tour of Europe, and finally, when visiting his sister's children, found that he seemed to work really well with them. His sister encouraged him to get a job teaching at a local private school called the Colorado Rocky Mountain School, and he remained there for a couple of years. Moore, on the other hand, took the traditional route, becoming a teacher, then a principal, then eventually superintendent of the California public schools. Holt, by contrast, never pursued any formal training as a teacher. Without that certification, he was restricted to teaching at private schools, like Colorado Rocky Mountain, and later on, the Shady Hills School and the Leslie Ellis School, both in the Boston area. I'm actually personally familiar with both of them, in my capacity as an education scholar at Leslie University. We have a partnership at Leslie with Shady Hill, and Leslie Ellis's name is no coincidence. Since the 1920s, it had been a lab school for what was then called Leslie College, although the school did split off entirely in the early 1980s. Both of these two private schools share a philosophy, as does Leslie University, about student-centered, project-based, interdisciplinary, engaging education. I think even if I didn't tell you I taught at Leslie, just by listening to my podcast, you would likely come to that same conclusion, at least if you know the Boston area ed schools, and hey, doesn't everybody? Anyway, 
Both Moore and Holt independently came to the conclusion that there was something deeply wrong with the DNA of public schooling. At first, Holt focused on school reform, published some books and articles, guest lectured at some prominent universities, including Harvard and Berkeley, and made something of a name for himself, but eventually came to the conclusion that school itself was the problem. He once wrote, quote, It's not that I feel school is a good idea gone wrong, but a wrong idea from the word go. It's a nutty notion that we can have a place where nothing but learning happens cut off from the rest of life, end quote. By the 1970s, Holton moved well past the bounds of mainstream progressive education. One of his books, Escape from Childhood, argued that children should be able to vote, to sue and be sued in court, and to choose their own legal guardians. He started writing about creating what he called an underground railroad to help children escape from what he called educational slavery in schools. Holt pretty much became persona non grata, even in leftist political circles. But in 1977, he began publishing a newsletter called Growing Without Schooling. This newsletter started as just a bunch of typewritten sheets, but eventually grew to serve as the backbone of a growing network that linked people who were, for whatever reasons, choosing to educate their children at home. But before we can talk about those folks, we need to backtrack to look at what Moore was doing over all these years. Holt, remember, had never actually worked in a public school as an educator. These were basically his independent observations and research that he was publishing. And by the way, Growing Without Schooling continued to publish until 2001, with 143 issues in its archive. Moore, on the other hand, was far more enmeshed in the traditional system, at least at first. He co-founded a research institution to study alternative methods of education, and he and his wife Dorothy got federal funds to conduct analyses of thousands of early childhood studies, the findings from which became the basis for his famous 1975 book, Better Late Than Early. This book and its sequel, School Can Wait, forwarded the recommendation that, quote, where possible, children should be withheld from formal schooling until at least ages 8 to 10, unquote. Moore's reasoning was that children really didn't have the neurology and skills to learn through rigid, systematic ways in which school taught, and that trying to make them do so created uncertainty, distress, and delinquency, at least the way he analyzed the situation. He proposed that children need, quote, more of home and less of formal school, more free exploration with parents, and fewer limits of classroom and books, more old-fashioned chores, children working with parents, and less attention to rivalry sports and amusements, end quote. Some religious groups, especially the Seventh-day Adventists, of which Moore was an adherent, really got into this philosophy, and a synthesis of their theology and Moore's theories became known as the Moore Formula. Like Holt's newsletter and subsequent 1981 book, Teach Your Own, the Moore Formula offered guidance for families attempting to create alternative educational experiences for their children. Now, there weren't a lot of families who were actually doing this around this time. Although it was only outright illegal in six states, homeschooling still required something of a bureaucratic dance for parents and guardians to exempt themselves from compulsory education laws to demonstrate that they were meeting certain standards, laws that varied widely from state to state, both in articulation and in enforcement. The Supreme Court was kind of iffy about whether or not families had a constitutional right to homeschool. A trio of Supreme Court cases in the 1920s, Meyer v. Nebraska, Farrington v. Takushke, and Pierce v. Society of Sisters of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary, if you're interested, ruled that states couldn't prevent people from sending their kids to private schools, which sort of made precedent for a parent's right to determine their own children's education. It was basically about not violating due process. In the 1972 case, Wisconsin v. Yoder, the court said that states had a right to impose educational standards, but couldn't stop parents from choosing to meet those standards in their own way that could potentially include a homeschooling setting. This was on the grounds of the free exercise clause in religious contexts. 
Still, by the late 1970s, only about 0.03% of school-aged children, about 13,000 in all, were being homeschooled in America. Today, that number has risen to about 2 million, or 3.4%. Why? Religious values were a major motivating force, and the surge of Christian evangelism in the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s led to an increase in homeschooled children. The 2001 No Child Left Behind Act and the stricter, more rote and standardized models that many schools adopted in response drove some families to take their children's learning into their own hands, as did the fear of increasing incidents of dramatic school violence. No Child Left Behind also increased schools' role in military recruitment, which bothered many pacifist or otherwise anti-nationalist families. Federal law changes in the 1990s made it easier for homeschooled kids to get financial aid for college, removing barriers to families that would otherwise have been too nervous to homeschool. Homeschooling as a practice became fully legal in all 50 states by the year 1993, reflecting a trend in Gallup polls of American voters. In 1985, for example, 73% of respondents listed themselves as being opposed to home education. By 2001, that number had dropped to 54%. So homeschooling has been on the rise for a while now. And that begs the question, how well do homeschooled children learn? The answer is, well, complicated. There's a dearth of rigorous quantitative studies that employ random sampling or have a large enough study population to wash out all the usual background variables. Let me give you an example. There are a great number of studies that demonstrate superior gains by various measures vis-a-vis -vis traditionally schooled children, as measured by standardized tests, including the SAT and the ACT, or college admissions, sometimes by as many as 7 to 10 percentage points. The problem, as any education researcher will tell you, is the population. While not all homeschool families are white and middle class, the majority are, and these demographics show strong performance in any school setting. You're really not comparing apples to apples if you're comparing them to the full public school population of the nation. If you think about it, it takes a certain amount of affluence to have a parent remain out of the workforce in order to full-time teach their kids. Some of these studies attempt to control for demographic variables. For example, race but there's little in the way of rigorous research on homeschooling, period, and there's next to nothing about homeschooling specifically among students of color. Also, given the well-established correlations between family involvement and school success in any kind of school setting, if you're looking at a self-selected population of families that are super involved in their kids' education, of course they're going to have an increased chance of being high performers. One of the classic challenges to homeschooling efforts is the fear that homeschooled children will be isolated and fail to develop adequate social skills. There did not seem to be a lot of research to support that fear, and no small number of studies that spoke to homeschoolers' greater emotional intelligence and fewer problem behaviors than their traditionally schooled peers. But here, as with the research on academic achievement, we come to a serious problem. The serious problem in evaluating homeschooling success or lack thereof is that a lot of the research we have is, frankly, pretty biased. The aforementioned Homeschooling Legal Defense Association funded five of the biggest studies of homeschooling in the 2000s. I found at least four separate meta-analyses over a period of three years that alleged that homeschooling families and networks often pressure one another to only participate in studies conducted by homeschooling advocacy groups. Finally, we have almost no longitudinal data from any source on the long-term impact of homeschooling later in adult life. Research in education, even more so than in other social sciences, is challenging because of the incredible variation among American public schools. See this podcast's very first episode for more on that. When you talk about variation in homeschooling environments, you've just kicked that challenge up several notches. Now you're not even comparing apples to oranges, but apples to rocking horses or spaceships. What's fundamentally at issue in homeschooling, I think, can be summarized in another quote by John Holt. Quote, I have come to believe that a person's schooling is as much a part of his private business as his politics or religion.
end quote. That statement makes for the antithesis to the slightly less than 150-year experiment the world has been making in universal compulsory public education in seeing schooling as a public utility that is the responsibility of the nation or the state. Not only that, but a public charge. In a 2002 article, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, who was also a professor of mine in my undergrad days at Brandeis, incidentally, painted the homeschooling trend as a part of the larger seeding of what were once public services to private firms. He wrote, Quote, although homeschooling may satisfy parents' desire to customize education for their children, such customization has its perils. Customizing a child's education through homeschooling represents the victory of a consumer mentality within education, as if the purpose of education was to please and satisfy the preferences of the consumer. End quote. Reich wonders if this compromises citizenship, or perhaps if it erodes our ability to interact with and make compromises with people whose beliefs might differ from ours. If it erodes our sense of a collective identity, of a nation that, of many, becomes one. These are all concerns that, 18 years and many social media filter bubbles later, remain some of the biggest challenges our nation seems to be facing. Now that the COVID-19 virus has effectively made homeschooling the singular method of education in the United States, at least temporarily, we've now been segmented into literally millions of independent homes educating their children in millions of different ways. It remains to be seen what effects this has on the future of public education whether it will be a strange and anomalous blip on the historical radar, or the turning point in a massive change to the way we understand how we educate our children. Normally, this would be where I'd end the podcast, but I happen to have a very close friend of over 30 years who has been homeschooling her son his whole life, and she was gracious enough to be interviewed for my podcast. Consider it just one more anecdote in the sea of anecdotal research about homeschooling, but it's an anecdote that I can present to you today just to give you a sense of one particular family's approach to homeschooling. Hi, Tanika. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Awesome. You have the distinction of being my first ever guest. Ooh, cool. All right. So for how long have you been doing homeschooling? Oh, my goodness. Let's see. My son is 11, and we started right off for kindergarten. I mean, he went to preschool for a few months, and then we started off right with continuing the last year of preschool. So I don't know, six years? Something like that. <laughs> what originally led you to do so? Well, um, you know, my son has special needs, and we really quickly discovered that a typical classroom setting just wasn't going to work for him. He was facing going into kindergarten with a class of 25 kids mm. and no direct support. They had obvious other kids that had higher needs that were using up the one or two paras in the classroom. Mm. And we just decided like it would just be an exercise in trying to keep him sitting down and there was just no way he would learn anything. You know, he needs a much calmer environment in which to learn, at least initially for sure. Did you approach the district at any time and ask if they had more resources they could allocate or was that just sort of a non-starter? Mm -hmm. We, I mean, we had his IEP meetings and they basically told us that there was no way he was going to have individual support, which I felt mm -hmm. he really needed to be successful. Their approach was, well, we'll give him support, but only if he like starts to develop behavioral problems or like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, like really starts failing. So I was like, yeah, I don't want to get to that point. You know, like I don't want him to have behavioral problems before they give him support. So I was like, that's just not going to work for me. 
So you embark upon this mission of homeschooling. How did you prepare? Well, that's a good question. Um, at first, I was trying a Waldorf-based curriculum, which was sort of an all-in-one package. That very quickly did not work for him because it's very intensely drawing and art-based. And he, at that point, was having trouble with his hand grip in the point in which he did not want to draw anything could not really hold a pencil correctly, was really rebelling against that. So, you know, that's been the one nice thing about homeschooling is that if something's not working, I can just chuck it out the window and try something else. So it took us a good long while of going through trial and error with various curriculums and approaches to find something that was sustainable for us and that worked. His curriculum is really a kind of a hodgepodge of a bunch of different things that I've found that have just really worked. But that was actually nice because it makes it able to be able to be tailored right to his needs and not have to fit him into what everybody else is doing. In the interest of full disclosure, I have been to your house. I have seen um, a lot of evidence of curriculum you're using, and it seems pretty robust. Looks like you have a combination of things that you invented and things that you've taken from various websites, and you have to provide a, a certain body of evidence. Um, it varies district to district. Every district makes up their own requirements for homeschooling. So in the city that I'm in, it really what I do is I, I probably do more than they want. <laughs> I feel like for my own records, I keep a very detailed record of what he does. I have heard stories of homeschoolers just sending in a, like a summary letter and the school departments just really don't have the time or resources to care very much. But what I do personally is I send in a binder because at least the district that I'm in, they can't tell you what you can teach. I mean, they, ha they can tell you to teach certain subjects. They cannot control how you teach it. Mm. So you are up to your own devices. You just have to sh teach certain subjects and then show progress. And you can submit that in the form of a portfolio of work samples. So I break it down by subjects. I usually teach, you know, anywhere from six to eight subjects. And then I break each down into a binder and I put samples in a summary letter for every subject. I do that once a year. How long does it take you to prepare that portfolio? Um, you know, not a whole lot of time. I don't give originals. The thing that takes the most time is photocopying the samples. <laughs> Literally photocopying the samples and writing my things. I've, I've got it down to a science now, though more than a day or two. So I guess that can spill into the next question, which is, you know, what do you think have been your biggest successes and what do you think have been your biggest challenges? Oh boy. Well, biggest successes for sure have been just watching my son just blossom under this. Like he has a, a dysgraphia. And so that means that I guess the part of his brain that actually controls very specifically writing letters, handwriting letters, just does not function as well as everybody else's. So the best thing about homeschooling is being able to tailor each subject to fit him. Because, you know, he's would be in the equivalent of fifth grade, but I'm still doing very basic handwriting exercises with him, um, only because that's where he's at. But in terms of social studies or science or things like that, I mean, he is operating at high school level or college level in some of those subjects. So, 
he's a couple grades behind in one and a couple grades ahead and the other it really makes him work at his own pace and that has been just so fantastic for him he doesn't feel stupid he doesn't feel like he can't keep up and he's able to be advanced in the subjects that he really is very uh, into in terms of failures i didn't say failures i said challenges <laughs> there's a real difference in those words okay 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 i think our less successful how about that sure our, our less successful adventures have been really on my end like sometimes i will find a curriculum that i'm just like oh i love this this is great it's gonna be perfect and i try to roll it out and it's like a no-go and my problem is sometimes i'm like no we must do this page by page it's fantastic don't you love it and max is like no <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> i have been there with my students many times that has challenging and but you know the good news with homeschooling is I can be like you know sometimes I have to have a period of mourning and then I just <laughs> and grab the next thing and say well how about this okay sure that works <laughs> wow period of mourning I'm dwelling in that statement for <laughs> just a moment it really is though it really is because I sometimes I'm just like this is great I want to learn this and, I wonder if this is somehow like inherent in the act of teaching. You know, I'm someone who has, you know, uh, had a very traditional teacher training and try and be progressive in my educational methods, but you know, I'm working inside a very traditional system. It's interesting that I hear a lot of convergence when you talk about some of the ways that you uh, react to or engage with, with your work. It's just kind of cool for me to, to see that connection. I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm into it. Some of the stuff we're doing right now I found a social studies program and a science program that are dovetailing really, really nicely. It's history of the world, but then it's also the history of science right along with it. So we're learning about the ancient Romans, but then we're also learning about what they invented, how they invented it, what the schools of thought were and why. And it's just really interesting and I'm learning a lot. That's terrific. So are there any myths about homeschoolers that you want to take this chance and dispel to the maybe even double-digit audiences of this podcast? <laughs> well, honestly, the thing that comes up most often, that homeschoolers are not well socialized. That could not be further from the truth. I mean, if you have a community with enough people homeschooling, you could literally do a social and or otherwise engagement activity every day every single day for hours, get no academics done because there's a homeschool ice skating, there's homeschool time at our local ping pong place, there's special homeschool days at Sturbridge Village. There's a lot of resources in this area. I can't speak to how it is everywhere else, but my son has really, you know, he has social dynamic difficulties because of his special needs. It's very tough for him to socialize with other kids but i found because there is a greater level of parental involvement within the social groups the kids are just they're nicer they're more tolerant they are more accepting of differences another big impetus for us to keep homeschooling has been that i really would worry about him being bullied in a typical school environment he's just different enough that that would happen. But I haven't had one single instance where that's been a problem in the homeschool community. 
how long do you plan to maintain the homeschooling? Is this going to be something up till he goes to college? Is this going to be something that will eventually transition to a more traditional school? What are your thoughts on that right now? You know, honestly, my thoughts on that are I am ready to homeschool him until he starts thinking about college. And I am leaving that ultimate decision in his court. If he decides that he wants to try out regular school, absolutely. We'll figure it out. But I'm not going to put the pressure of, you know, because I'm able to, because I'm really, really lucky in my life arrangements at the moment to be able to do this for him. I'm ready to do it as long as he wants to. You know, right now he's 10 and he's thinking, I'm never going to want to move out and be away from my parents. I know, he hasn't quite reached that age yet, so we'll see. I don't know what's going to happen when he's a teenager, but (laughs) I'm leaving that decision (laughs) up to him. And believe it or not, there are resources of people who will help you make the transition from homeschool to college. It's not as hard as you think. There are rules and laws in place that help you. And if I'm completely honest, there's a lot of institutions now that specifically enjoy taking homeschoolers into their programs because they're often much more able to critically think and work on their own. And they've had, they have to understand and not just memorize. Mm. So any long-term listeners of the show will certainly find that's a familiar uh, (laughs) message just, you know, occasionally. So to start to wrap things up, if there are folks out there who, you know, thanks to this COVID-19 situation that's sort of thrust homeschooling upon a great many of us, assuming things return to normal at some point, whom would you recommend and not recommend homeschooling for? You know, I think that there are a variety of personality types that, that can get into homeschooling. There's different options. There's a lot of places that you can have a drop-off program. We go to a nature program that's about three hours once a week, and I'm able to drop off my son and go pick him up later, and he gets socialization. The kids that have the hardest time with it are the ones who are very much extroverts, who really enjoy the whole social dynamic of being with their peers constantly. And you can compensate for that because there are homeschool co-ops. There are programs that are drop-off that are let you have a little bit of autonomy. I think it gets harder for people in the high school age range because they're sort of testing out their independence. And homeschooling with your parents as your teacher kind of lends a little bit of that not really happening in that mm-hmm. traditional way. So it's, it depends on the personality of your kid. You'll know quickly whether it's going to work or not. I think COVID-19 crisis is giving us all a chance maybe to evaluate that with our own children. (laughs) True. I think this under special circumstances, I mean, we've been, I consider myself a veteran homeschooler right now. And honestly, we are not doing a full academic load right now. We're, we really can't. I, the stress, the ambient stress level is enough that I am not stressing over it right now and I want people who are listening to totally forgive yourself really Mm. don't worry about it even even people who are homeschool veterans are stepping back right now because it's just too much don't stress your kids out don't stress yourself out it's okay if if you just read to them for an hour (laughs) 
and plop them in front of an educational program and occasionally throw them some fish sticks, you're doing good. <laughs> I will try and internalize that. I, I have to say I've always respected the work you've done with your son, but I have an entire new appreciation for it now that I have only been through a week of homeschooling my own two children. <laughs> and wow, am I tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is it is challenging some days. There are some times where I'm just like, you know what? Let's play hooky today. And the good news <laughs> is I can do that as a homeschooler. <laughs> Maybe when the playgrounds reopen, we'll try that. <laughs> right, yeah, we're kind of limited at the moment. <laughs> I guess just to sort of wrap things up, let's say there's someone out there listening to the show who is, you know, seriously considering doing homeschooling as a long-term solution. You've got one piece of advice for them. What's it going to be? Oh, gosh. Honestly, my one piece of advice would be don't get too precious with a curriculum that you pick. The best part of homeschooling is being able to chuck something out the window that's not working. Be totally open to finding what does work and sticking with that and not worrying about what everyone says you should do because there is no wrong if your child is progressing and learning and enjoying themselves and finding meaning and stuff like that. Don't worry about worksheets. Don't worry about stuff like that. Really find your own path with it. Terrific. Well, Tanika, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking time out of your busy homeschooling schedule. Oh yeah, my, my schedule's not wide open right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening. And remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Instead of an educational fun fact, this time I want to give you an encouragement to donate money or time to organizations or individuals working to support vulnerable people during the COVID-19 crisis. I recommend the American Red Cross, the CDC Foundation, or Direct Relief. Beyond sending money, one can do grocery runs for immunocompromised people or help set up and maintain micropantries for folks in economic distress. In short, there's a lot you can do, so please do what you can, and we'll get through this together. Bye.